When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Nathan Jordan Poole about his story, Idlewild, which appeared in issue 22 of The Common. Nathan Jordan Poole is the author of two books of fiction, Father, Brother, Keeper, a collection of stories selected by Edith Perlman for the Mary McCarthy Prize, and Path Killer as the Holy Ghost, selected by Benjamin Percy as the winner of the Quarterly West Novella Contest. He is a recipient of the Narrative Prize, a Milton Fellowship at Seattle Pacific University, a Joanne Beebe Fellowship at Warren Wilson College, a Tennessee Williams Scholarship at Sewanee School of Letters, and a North Carolina Artist Fellowship. He lives with his wife and two daughters in Blue Ridge, South Carolina. Nathan Jordan Poole, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is this is going to be fun, I think. I hope so. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Just describe where you're calling from now. Yeah, I'm, I'm calling from my house here in the upstate of South Carolina. We live um, in a region that's known as the Blue Ridge Escarpment. So we're right right here where the mountains um, kick up off of the Piedmont. And I'm currently in my living room. That sounds lovely. Is it, it must be quite warm there. It's, it's, it's not too warm today. It's, it's, it, uh, it's, it's nice. The, the, the one thing about this kind of area geographically is that we do have some elevation. So even in the, sort of the dog days of summer, we we still often have to put on a sweater in the evenings or the mornings. So uh, we moved here from uh, Mobile, Alabama, where once once summer starts there, it does not let up. Um, and so it's been pretty refreshing. That does sound good. We haven't really quite hit spring yet or, or summer yet in, in New England where I am. It's still pretty cold. Um, I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Sure. Idlewild. December evenings, his wife and daughter would linger at the kitchen window to watch the deer come down their switchbacks. There was a stand of chinkapins. The deer would prize the nuts from the urchin-shaped husks. He can see his wife leaning over the sink, his daughter on a stool beside her. He once cherished this time of year, days of red sumac and rhyme, days when the rock walls along the mountain parkway bared swags of gray ice. The rhododendron would curl up like tubes near blue, 
Everything on the hillsides would be exposed, including the deer. He sees them standing there still, two images of each other across time. Their red aprons on, matching bows at the back of their waists, watching the deer. Such a small, true pleasure to watch something wild and vulnerable. He rides along the parkway, heading home, knowing his wife and daughter will not be there. He watches the roadbed for ice, for rocks that broke free in the first hard frost. It's an old habit, the way a parent drives, wary of any threat. Two years ago, they were at a church dinner. It was a week before Christmas. There was the smell of dinner rolls, cleaning supplies, and the vague mothball smell of that old building. The children ran in, their feet echoing, vibrating the folding tables. Some of them were screaming. Some wore a stunned look of hilarity and guilt. Mainly, they looked scared. The look conveyed the sudden need for the adult world to enter, to take over, and make sense of something, to wipe away the horrible dream they had all just dreamed collectively, to say good morning, to soothe the sweaty hair. He recalls especially one child laughing, his hand over his cupped mouth, laughing though his eyes welled with tears. The adults arrived in the cemetery all at once. They outpaced the children who had led them. He was running, trying to understand what the kids had been saying. A tower fallen. Thank you for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you describe what the piece is about, sort of summarize it? Sure. The main character's name is Aaron, and he's a, um, a biology teacher who loses his daughter in a tragic accident. And in the aftermath of that accident, he decides to quit his job teaching and starts working remedial jobs. And one of those jobs is working on a tree farm. And as he's working on a, that farm, I say tree farm, but I mean Christmas tree farm um, because the story's set um, near Boone, um, North Carolina. Um, and as he's working on that farm, he encounters a migrant worker named Ayuso and they, um, they connect over kind of a strange incident that happens during the day and Aaron ends up kind of following him into his life a little bit. Um, and it becomes sort of a transformative experience for um, that character. That is such a perfect summary. <laughs> Thank you for that. I think some writers have trouble summarizing their work, but that is, that is exactly how I would have done it. Okay. <laughs> um, I would love to hear, yeah, no, that's, it's good news. I would love to hear how you came to write this story. Like what inspired you to start work on it and, and how, how that first draft came together? Well, when we were, when my wife and I were living in Boone, I was teaching at App State um, in a lecture line. And she was a graduate student there. Um, and and so uh, she wasn't in, <laughs> I should say that she uh, wasn't in my department. She was studying um, speech pathology. Uh, so she, she wasn't one of my students. Um, um, but uh, so we were really poor. Um, and I was taking whatever odd jobs I could on the side. And I ended up working on a Christmas tree farm. Um, and so there's, there's many components of this story that are autobiographical in some ways. Um, uh, I play many of the characters in this story, um, um, uh, with mainly with the exception of the migrant worker, Ayuso. Um, uh, but I did encounter um, uh, 
some some people in that line of work that that really made me wonder um, about what their life was like compared to mine. Um, and uh, I think I, it wasn't something that I um, had intended to write about. It was just something that I had been contemplating. And I, I guess that's sort of how stories start for me is that I'll be sort of thinking about something, not even consciously necessarily, but um, I'll be meditating on something for a long time. And then suddenly it will, it will find its way years later, usually into my writing life. So that's, that's how the story mm. started. I think my favorite thing about this story is, is that it's, it's handling the main character, Aaron, it's handling his, his really deep, painful trauma in this kind of light, delicate way. And I, and I don't mean light in like a flippant way, but light in that we're sort of moving through this world with Aaron, you know, this, this work that he's doing and experiencing various scenes, but with small moments of, of grief and memory and longing and loss. And there's just sort of dusted throughout and it's handled with a, with a light touch, but the impact is still powerful. Would you tell us a little bit just about getting that balance right when you were writing? Well, I hope I got it right. Um, <laughs> that's always, that's always the challenge. Um, I guess in some ways we're talking about subtext. Um, and on, on the craft side of that, Charles Baxter has a wonderful book, out from Grey Wolf that's called The Art of Subtext. Um, so I would really encourage any any writer of fiction, especially to um, check out that particular book. Um, if they want to think more analytically, I guess, about the craft of subtext, it's a great resource. But um, I, um, I think that that's such a huge part of of how, how stories work, right? How they, how they manage to be these compressed things. I say compressed for me is kind of um, <laughs> not necessarily a fair word. My stories tend to be kind of long and, and messy in, in terms of their structure. Um, uh, but still, they're not novels. They have to do a lot in, in, you know, 17 to 18 pages. And so being able to use um, images uh, metaphor, whatever you whatever you can find that can allow the the mood or the atmosphere of the story to contain that in in the case of this story to sort of contain the aftermath of the tragedy um, because it is such a not to completely spoil the story but it's it's, it's a very difficult thing that Aaron goes through um, and. Um, I, I, I was aware when I was thinking about him as a character and thinking about the story and as I was drafting that um, he, he would have developed mechanisms, not necessarily of repression, but of, of ways to navigate that grief. Um, and so I tried to, to allow his character to, to kind of inform how that um, tragic event would be um, uh, in, introduced in the story or um, hidden in the story, so to speak. Um, and one of the ways that I, I, I decided to do that eventually was to have him be a biology teacher. Um, and so he, he thinks about grief in chemical ways sometimes. He, and even though he's still a very emotional person, he, he meditates on that tragedy in ways that I think are really kind of specific to his 
field. Um, so that was one tool that kind of came about as I was drafting that I thought was at least helpful. But yeah, in the end, I think it all comes down to those those tools of subtext and how we um, how we try to accomplish that sort of sleight of hand as writers. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking of these moments where he can just sort of think about his his small empty apartment. And it's sort of implied in there that he used to have more of a home, you know, with more people in it and a family. And you can just, just by mentioning the apartment, we get that sort of feeling of grief from him, but, but, you know, not in any kind of maudlin way. Yeah. Yeah. When I first read this story in the queue, it was, it was over Christmas break and I had COVID. <laughs> so I was just oh, sitting yeah. there just reading and reading submissions <laughs> and, and Idlewild just, it really knocked me out because it, it was such a different world. It was so unfamiliar, this life of, of tree farms and transient labor and, and horses. Um, and, and Aaron is such a great guide for us through that world because we sort of get the impression that in these two years, he's sort of seen it all, he, you know, seen people come and go. I'm just wondering, like, how did you build out this world? Like, I, I know you were saying that some of it comes from personal experience, but um, I mean, is that just like putting tons of it on the page and then pulling it back? Or, or how, how did how did Claude come to you? How did these these characters in this world come to you? Yeah, much of that is through personal experience. Sure. Um, that that can that can get you pretty far. I, I, I think that. <laughs> There, um, there's also the fact that the character Aaron has has really really jettisoned his past life, so he's he's an outsider still to um, this kind of working class world that he's in, <clears throat> and I, I think just identifying with that personally, um, and that I was when I was in the time frame when I was having these experiences that sort of parallel the story, um, I, I, w I wasn't, you know, really announcing that I was a, a, a college professor at the time. Um, it's, it's not something that I would sort of lead with, you know, um, it's just right. <laughs> like how, uh, the writer William Gay once said that he never, when he was working construction, he never showed up at the fire barrel in the morning and told everyone that he wrote a sonnet the night before. Um, <laughs> it's just not something you do. Um, there's a kind of decorum there, I guess. Um, mm. and, and so I, I, uh, I guess because when, when you're in experiences that you're not necessarily at home where you feel like the outsider, um, details kind of stick. They're a little stickier than when you're mm. in the center of your life. Um, in the same way that when we travel, that happens, you know, our, our senses of perception become kind of heightened because we're expecting um, uh, to use them in new ways. And so I, I think that a lot of the details and of the world, um, they were, in terms of, you know, you asked the question, did I draft a lot and then pull it back? I didn't have to do that so much for this story because the details had already kind of self-selected. It was, it was the things mm -hmm. that had really clung to me. Um, but I often, in other stories, I often do find that that's the first step in, in my drafting process is to start cutting because usually the first draft is really profligate. Mm -hmm. And then I have to go and, and start that work of compression and figuring out what doesn't need to be there. Yeah. I feel like it's hard 
I'm just starting to write something that's a little bit autobiographical and it's so hard to know what details you need when you first start out because they're just sort of the details you remember. And then later you have to sort of figure out which, which details the story actually needs. (laughs) Right. Right. And as I think that once you, once the, the ending is there, it's so much easier to, to start trying to find what's at the center of the story. Um, Mm -hmm. I had the really rare opportunity to to spend several weeks with Flannery O'Connor's um, manuscripts um, down in wow. Louisville. This is when I was a graduate student, and I um, applied to spend time with her papers. And I think I waited a year to hear mm-hmm. back from the college, and finally got um, a window to go and spend time with her papers. And w- one of the things that I noticed, kind of studying her draft process. Um, is that students always ask me, how do you know when a story is done? You know, that's sort of a a perennial question. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I noticed is that she, she would continue to work on a story until really everything in the story was pointing at what for her was sort of a central moment. Um, Mm-hmm. So that was that was sort of part of her filters. Is 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 everything pointing in the same direction? Is everything kind of have this cin, um, centripetal? Um, sorry, centrifugal. I think no centripetal. <laughs> this, this centripetal force. <laughs> is it, like is everything aiming at the center? Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. uh, I think once you have the end um in place it's it's easier to go through and make those decisions they don't feel quite as arbitrary um if that makes any sense Mm. yeah no i'm feeling that i should take that advice (laughs) in my own writing (laughs) think more about that yeah um this story has to jump us through through quite a bit of time um you know you read the the beginning section and and was sort of starting towards the, the the accident where he loses his daughter and then um, we sort of pause and see maybe a snapshot of, of, of the sort of dissolution of his marriage and then moves forward these two years to when Aaron is doing this Christmas tree work and, and meeting Ayuso. Um, did you have any concerns about making those kind of moves um, in a short story? Were there like logistics that you weighed or struggled with or, or did you find that it worked pretty seamlessly? Um, I guess I... I don't necessarily have concerns about those leaps in time. I, I, I do want them. I, I do want them to come at the right moment. Um, I think that that when I think about white space in fiction, mm. my my question tends to never be what's what am I missing? What information am I missing? Um, but why did it happen here? Why why are we breaking here? And so that, um, I'm. I give myself a lot of, of freedom when it comes to sort of taking leaps and hoping that the reader will follow me through time. And I guess that's just because I, I read a lot of fiction that's really messy in terms of its structure. I love fiction that has, mm-hmm. in terms of timeline, it's very jagged. I think All the King's Men, Robert Van Warren's great novel, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's so messy. I mean, it, if you tried to... Um, make a map of that story structure you would you would really exhaust yourself um and you know alice monroe is another writer that she's not scared to just really make a mess <laughs> um 
true. I think of a story like Mile City, Montana, where you, <laughs> if you've read that story, um, it's one of my favorites for that reason, you know, in particular, is that it's, the, the structure of it is, is really complex, but it doesn't feel complex when you're reading it because the leaps in time are usually triggered by the narrator's need to go there. Um, I love, uh, there's a moment in that story where she, the narrator thinks of her, her um, thought life as a, as a wooing of her distant parts. Um, and that's the, a quote from the story. And I think in some ways that's what stories are. They we're, we're, we're wooing all of these desperate moments of a character's life and trying to make them uh, come together for a particular reason um, at a particular time. You know, you can create a lot of meaning by doing that. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with stories taking leaps and being messy because I think that that's how we tell stories. It's, I, I think that organically stories, especially spoken stories are very iterative. You know, we're often when we're telling stories going back and saying, Oh, but I have, I forgot that I left out this one thing and I've got to tell you this other thing before mm-hmm. this other thing makes sense, you know? Um, um, and, and so I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, maybe there's some hubris there. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to be comparing myself to Alfred <laughs> or to Robert Penn Warren. Um, yeah. But if they can do it, I might as well try. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I also think um, I'm just thinking again about the experience of first reading this story and you know, I think a lot of writers would have handled this. They would have just put the accident, the tragic accident sort of in backstory and it would have felt like, or a flashback once the story gets going and you're already situated. Um, and I enjoyed so much. I just felt like there was a, um, a boldness, but also a quietness to just starting with, with the sort of the logistics and the scene of the accident. And then, trusting that the reader will stay with you to start the, the, the action of the story later. I, I just really, you know, I, I liked that about the story that it sort of trusts the reader to sort of go along those time jumps. Yeah. I have thought a lot about aftermath in fiction. That's something that I've been particularly interested in um, and the ways that, because a lot of fiction is, is fiction of aftermath. You know, we like characters that, are being introduced at a moment of change. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're drawn to that as, as readers. There's something anthropological about it. Um, and so I, it's something I've thought, I've thought a lot about. Um, just to, to, to add to your point, I think it's, it's, it's a powerful force, but mm-hmm. it's also something that does, does take some thought um, in, in terms of the, mm-hmm. the, craft, the craft of it can be very um, risky. Yeah, I feel that. There is a moment in this story when when Aaron realizes that that the events of the day, the, the sort of the events that we see in the story, which involve uh, you know a fight and and various other things, um, which seem quite dramatic to him and and to us, I think as readers, is actually fairly mundane to this um, migrant worker Ayuso, who is who is sort of used to being treated so poorly by these white men that he works with and who are threatened to share the work with him. Um, and I, I just really loved that moment. And I wondered if, if there's anything you wanted to say about how these two characters play off each other in this world. Yeah, they're, 
<clears throat> they are still still fairly mysterious to me, so I still like thinking about them. Um, <laughs> uh, it is. It, I did think that that was kind of from. It might not have come across as funny, but for me, that was sort of there was some humor in it. In that, um, I guess the humor is that Aaron and Ayusa get. Um, to this laundromat where Ayuso is meeting a friend and Aaron is thinking that Ayuso is going to lead with this thing that happened at work that day. Hmm. Um, because for Aaron getting physically assaulted at work w- would be a big deal. Um, and Ayuso doesn't really mention it. And that's when I think Aaron realizes, oh, this is, this is not, um, abnormal that this is kind of a normal day for this this character and I, I think that that was a big aha moment for Aaron to think oh um that's what it's like mm-hmm. to be um to be a migrant worker here in the um southeast of the United States um <clears throat> that it, it's it's very fraught and that those things are quite common um yeah and so th- they're 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 um, attracted to each other's um, differences, but they really the one the one thing they have in common is that they were kind of thrown into this altercation together. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but they have a very different. I imagine they have a very different understanding of, of that experience. Yeah, I like that they have. There's a kinship between them that you know that maybe they're both a little feeling a little bit like outsiders in this situation or something like that, but. Um, we still see these moments that show us that they are also, you know, quite different from each other and their experiences are, are very different. Yeah. And I think that, um, one of the thing that there was a moment in the story that I thought was interesting and a good opportunity. And that suddenly they're both out of work at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. and so they both have essentially a whole day to kill, um, suddenly. And, um, and so I think Aaron just wants to kind of follow this guy home. You know, I think he's just, there's just that natural curiosity of um, where do you go when you, when, when you leave here? Um, I, I still work in construction and I spend a lot of time during the day with um, folks that are, that are here from um, all over uh Central America, um, South America, um, Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. They're doing drywall, cabinets, plumbing. I mean, they're building. They're building our houses, um, but they're not really a visible population politically. Um, they have a way of kind of vanishing after the workday is done, um, and 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 so I. I I think some of that is just out of out of necessity, um, and uh, some of that is also out of choice. I imagine, and that they they have cultures that they're trying to sustain and um, protect here in a place that is not their home. Um, and so it's not it's not um, uh, it's not a world that you can access easily, even though. The, the folks that I've met on job sites are some of the warmest, most generous, helpful people. Um, uh, mm-hmm. 
you're not going to get invited home for dinner on on uh, on one encounter, you know. Um, right. And so I think that Aaron had that that same kind of curiosity: is where where is this man going to go now, and what would happen if I if I kind of forced myself into his life and tried to follow him. So I don't know mm-hmm. if that answers your question, but some somehow we yeah. got there. No, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, I just, yeah, I really love that moment. And, you know, Aaron doesn't necessarily want to go home to his empty apartment. So there's this feeling of sort of, um, you know, the loss that's behind him and sort of turning to this moment with Ayuso is like a, a way out of that. Yeah. Um, I love hearing about a writer's revision process. I know we've already talked a little bit about the process of revising this piece and sort of how it came together, but I wonder, like, do you have any sort of general revision advice for writers or like tricks and strategies that you usually turn to for, for revising your work? I haven't, I haven't found a formula or a template. Um, and and I think that's because each story is is so idiosyncratic. Um, I think if you're doing it right, each story is really a brand new challenge. And and the stuff you did before on a previous story that might have been successful might not work on the next story. Um, you just don't know. So um, that was always frustrating for students to hear. I think for people that are looking for advice, that's always frustrating. But mm. But there is advice there in the sense that um, this, the piece itself is, is going to suggest, um, what's working. If, if you're, if you're, if you're reading with kind of your third ear, that's a, a term from Nietzsche. Uh, he always talked about this third ear and I thought that was such a funny expression, but the idea that you have to like, that writers have to grow this third organ of perception because we're not really born with the the sensibility we need to detect our failures and successes you know as opposed to if I was to try to learn to play violin I I would discover pretty quickly you know whether whether I was good at it or not um and I would discover I would discover really quickly what where I needed to improve um but writing's not like that right it's when when we start writing, we the, I think the first story I wrote in college I thought was incredible. You know, um, <laughs> I thought I, yeah. I, I thought I'd written a masterpiece. Um, <clears throat> and so to have someone you know tell me there were flaws in it, I, I thought, well, that's crazy. It has a beginning and a middle and an end. <laughs> what could possibly be wrong? Um, mm-hmm. And so it takes such a long time to to grow that organ that can allow us to detect what's working in a story. Um, uh, and, and so I, I think finding those moments where you, you feel energized, you, you feel excited, you feel like something good is happening with either the language or a situation is unique. Usually those are moments where you're a little surprised as a writer. Um, Mm. those are good moments to come back to and to kind of look at and see what, what are the possibilities there? What is what is that moment suggesting? Um, something else that's helpful that I think I I got from reading an interview that Hemingway did in the Paris Review. 
um, is that I, I like to leave a story when I'm certain that I know where, what I want to do next with it. Um, so when I get to a place where I, I, I know exactly what, what I'm about to do and I'm excited about it, um, it might be like, okay, I've just gotten to a scene where there's going to be some dialogue. And I think that dialogue is going to really crackle, but I've been writing for two hours and I'm mm -hmm. tired. So I'm going to stop right here. Um, for some reason, in terms of process, that helps me to come back and pick it up kind of in the energy of the story as opposed to coming, if I write to a point where I've kind of exhausted my imaginative impulse of the moment, um, it's, hard, it's hard for me to, to dive back into the heart of the story, um, if that makes any sense. So that's, that's advice that, I, that I've taken and has proved to be helpful for me. Um, hopefully that could, could help someone else, but um, that's about, you know, that's, yeah, a, I, that's about all I have. That's the best I can do. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that's great. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right that it is, it is very individual, not, not necessarily individual to the writer, but individual to the story and what it needs. Um, and yeah, and I'm always trying to follow that Hemingway advice, but I'm really bad about stopping what when I'm excited about the next thing. <laughs> okay. so you were, you, you, you're familiar with that as well. Yeah. I have heard that are people who say like, just write until you get a thousand words and then stop no matter where you're at, you know, to, so that you can pick up in the middle again. And it absolutely works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's um, hard, right? It, it is hard not to, to want to keep going when you feel like the juice is flowing because we're yeah, so Yeah. Or what if I come back and it's not yeah. as good? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're very scared yeah. as us writers that the mm -hmm. muse is going to, to vanish at, at any moment. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I think it's kind of like uh, what you were saying about when you play the violin and you like know whether it's good or not. Um, I think writers, we have all these superstitions and stuff. And I think it's sort of tied to that, this feeling that like when it's going good, you don't really know why it's going good. And when it's going bad, you don't always know why it's going bad. And so I think we hem ourselves in a little bit there trying to figure out what's working and what's not. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I come from a fairly rural background. I grew up on a dairy farm. And so it always makes me happy to find stories set in rural locations that, that really capture that place and that way of life, you know, the differences there. And I think from what I've read that, that your story collection, Father, Brother, Keeper, is all stories about rural life. Is, is that true? For the most part, yeah. I, they are either about rural life or they, they are about suburban expansion and the land use practices that are involved in um, suburban sprawl, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, it, it's, it's a subject that's always been kind of with me. Um, I did not grow up in a, in a strictly um, rural setting. I didn't grow up on working land, so to speak. I wasn't, I didn't grow up on a farm. Um, I had a lot of family mm -hmm. members that were farmers that we would spend the summer with them in Georgia, but it wasn't, it wasn't my world, um, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. and so I initially came into my interest in rural life through a lot of romantic notions, kind of bucolic notions. 
Um, <laughs> and then when you then when you actually have a, a more long term experience in a rural way of life, you lose those romantic notions pretty quickly. Um, uh, um, I think it's an important subject. It's something that I. It's not as though I'm I'm I have an axe to grind specifically, but I I do have concerns mm-hmm. about I think we all do right now about the way that the urban and rural um, dichotomy in America is becoming um, uh, such a parallel to the political divide in America, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. that's such a dangerous thing. Um, um, it's, I think it's dangerous on multiple levels, but one of those being that I think one of the most important being that working land is where our food comes from. Um, and so if we start misunderstanding and, um, alienating the, the people that produce the food that sustains us, um, that's not going to go well. Um, there, there really needs to be harmony between what mm-hmm. the urban life offers and what the rural life offers. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's, it's not that, it's not that there's one specific thing that I, that I want to say in my work about that, but it's, it's just that I want mm-hmm. to complicate, um, that dichotomy as much as I can, or, or really to kind of eradicate that dichotomy, um, uh, I, I think uh, a great deal about the fact that most people who are encountering working land or rural land, they they either like me thought it was really romantic or bucolic, you know, it's so oh, it's so charming, um, or they found it really intimidating and alienating, and or maybe they thought, well, this is Trump country I'm in, and this is mm. this is there's there's a danger here, there's menace here. Um, and neither of those two positions are true um, right. uh, completely. They're, they're not the full picture. And so I, I, I always think it's, it's nice to have a subject that you want to introduce complexity into, introduce ambiguity into. Um, that seems to be a strong, a strong position to be in as a writer. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm, 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 I'm drawn to, to working land, to, into rural settings. Um, I was able to, to write a piece for Ecotone's town country issue, which I thought was a great, you know, they're, they're another journal, another journal that I think thinks about place quite seriously. It's, you know, that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I love the common, um, Ecotone is another journal that I think is just doing such great work thinking about place. Um, yeah, but they did a town country issue, um, and it's that it was specifically about that that kind of those questions, um, um, and so it was it was fun to to write a story for that um, particular issue, um, thinking about those those dynamics and how fraught they are, but also just how important it is that we don't that we don't mess this up um, uh, because. Mm. We need everyone. We we need we need the culture and the industry of the cities, and we need the we need the the food and the natural resources of of wilderness and working land. We need 
good clean water. You know, uh, we need we all need to be thinking through these things carefully. Um, and I think fiction can can do that. I think it can be a very careful way to to think through things and to contemplate things without rushing to a, to a specific um, solution or answer. Um, yeah, and I'm yeah, absolutely. I, I, I could <laughs> I could just go on and on. I guess uh, I guess it's something that I didn't realize <laughs> I had so much to say about. Um, sorry, what were you going to say? No, well, I'm just I'm really glad that I asked you about it <laughs> because that was so interesting. I mean, I absolutely agree with you um, and feel a lot the same way. And I often feel like when I'm trying to write about rural life that I'm trying to show people that 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 nuance and that complication that it is sort of a beautiful way of life but that it's also really messy and sad and difficult and 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 just you know humanize something that a lot of people might not have access to in, in their regular lives and I, and I agree that fiction might be the best way or one of the only ways we we have to do that now that everything is so so polarized that um you're not necessarily going to end up in a conversation with someone who's lived that different kind of life yeah yeah absolutely um i think i think we need stories desperately um these these mm-hmm. days um and i'm really drawn to fiction that functions as some kind of a, you know epistemological tool um not and, and by that i don't mean fiction that is advocating for something in particular it's not it's i'm not against fiction that has a kind of social agenda i, I think it has absolutely has <laughs> a place um, um but I, I, I think all good fiction presents experiential knowledge. And simply because that knowledge isn't articulate doesn't mean that it's not extremely valuable. Um, and so having, those, having that experiential knowledge in a story that, that has a kind of epistemological import to the reader, it, it, it's instructive, but it's not didactic you know um it, it's it's mm-hmm. so mysterious and and i yeah i'm really drawn to fiction that that does that um yeah well i guess the good news is is that you wrote a story that absolutely does that <laughs> oh i hope so thank you for saying that that, that would be good news <laughs> oh I just, I really, I really adore this story. Um, I have one last question, um, which is just, what are you working on now? Like what's next from you? Um, it's sort of a horrible question to ask a writer, isn't it? It's just, um, isn't it so mean? (laughs) So I mean, it's like asking, um, a senior in high school, what's, what's next for them. Um, Exactly. Uh, it, <laughs> I've I've got a novel that I that I've had in my life for quite a long time, um, and so I'm still working on that. Um, it's a historical novel that's set in um, uh, Reconstruction, um, South Carolina, um, and it's mm-hmm. and it's a beast just because it, it it does have a historical component, involves lots of research, um, right. Um, and I'm also working on a story collection um, that this, this story will be included in. Um, I've got mm-hmm. one more story that I would like to place before I start um, shopping that story collection around. And mm-hmm. I also have this other project that is a, a collection of essays. It's about the pine, um, paper, and pulp industry of the American Southeast. 
Um, and wow. those are those are essays um, that look at the sociological, the sociological, ecological um, impact of the um, paper industry largely, but also um, the resource that is pine trees, um, um, and kind of asking the question of are are they a, a renewable resource? How do they impact um, who we are as people on a daily basis? Um, yeah. So if there's any any um, editors out there that are looking for nonfiction, <laughs> um, I would love to send you my pitch. Um, <laughs> but one of those pieces was um, that, that- was sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just I was just going to say it just sounds like you have a lot of irons in the fire, and I, I admire that very much. <laughs> yeah, I ha- I have to do that um, <laughs> because eventually something that I'm working on is going to start hurting my feelings, and um, I've got to mm. be able to I've got to be able to shift gears. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I try to write consistently, but I don't. I don't dare write consistently on the same project for too long. Um, uh, that that hasn't proved to be a, a great thing for my mental health. So I like to have, I like to be toggling back and forth between different projects. I guess the good news for us is that we'll have lots of work to read from you eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Okay. Well, Nathan Jordan Poole, thanks so much for joining us, making time to talk with me. It's been really great talking with you about this story. Yeah. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Listeners, you can read Nathan's story, Idlewild, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.